I wonder sometimes if we really believe what we just sang. Do you understand how much you need Jesus? Do, you really, do we really get that? I sometimes wonder. I'm grateful for that reminder this morning. I need Jesus every day, every hour, every minute, right? And I was thinking last night, I was falling asleep and kind of reflecting on our day yesterday with Joyce's family and the service and grateful for so many people behind the scenes that uh, not everybody's behind the scenes, but I'm especially grateful for those kind of behind the scenes. I get the privilege of standing up here every week and I'm kind of front and center as it were and I'm grateful for our worship team every week. And uh, did I see a new person playing the flute? That Now is that a flutist or a flautist? What's the correct term? I thought a flauta was something I got at the Mexican restaurant with guacamole. So, um, but I'm so grateful for, for our musicians and I'm grateful for a church that's willing to let uh, three young girls sing and lead us and uh, be excited about that. Uh, just, yeah, wow. Um, I'm grateful for the guys in the back with the technology, working on the camera. Jesse's got the camera under control, I think. And uh, David and Tim are back there, and usually Habib. Um, but they make, they make all this kind of work. And I just stand up and, you know, kind of do my thing, and I, I'm grateful. And, and yesterday we had our care commission and the fellowship commission came and, and helped them to serve and set up and all that, again, behind the scenes. And I just, I just want to say I'm thankful. God is so good, isn't he? I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. Well, this morning I want to share with you good news and bad news. Do you enjoy the good news, bad news jokes? You know, I I find them humorous so often. And one of my favorites is the story of the defense attorney who told his client, he said, I have have some bad news and some good news. Uh, The bad news is the uh, blood test came back and your DNA is an exact match with the sample found on the victim's clothing. Oh, no, he said, I'm ruined. What's the good news? It says your cholesterol's down to 140. Oh, <laughs> uh, I wish my cholesterol was down to 140. I don't know about you. Can I blow my nose and turn the microphone off? <sighs> and then I found this list of good news, bad news for pastors, and I found this kind of fun. The good news is you baptized seven people today in the river. Bad news is you lost two of them in the swift current. Uh, I think we almost lost Kathy in the surf at the last baptism that Rick did down at Seal Beach. I thought that was cool. Um, the good news is... <laughs> Kathy wasn't so thrilled as I was watching her drift out. but <laughs> She survived and here we are. The women of good news, the women of grace voted to send you a get well card. Bad news, the vote was 31 to 30. They sent me a birthday card this week, by the way. Thank you, ladies. Uh, 
I hope it was a, a passing vote by that close, but anyway. Um, the good news is you finally found a choir director who approaches things exactly the way you do. Bad news, the choir mutinied. Yeah. Choir mutinies is nothing new, by the way, yeah. Um, the good news is the women's softball team finally won a game. The bad news is they beat your men's softball team. <laughs> I love that one. The good news is the elders finally voted to add more church parking. The bad news is they're going to blacktop the front lawn of your parsonage. Good news, the church attendance rose dramatically in the last three weeks. You know the bad news, right? You were on vacation. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are, some of these are painful. Um, good news, your deacons uh, want to send you to the Holy Land. Bad news, they're stalling until the next war. <laughs> uh, good news, the elder board accepted your do- job description exactly the way you wrote it. Bad news. They were so inspired by it, they also formed a search committee to find somebody capable of filling the position. Oh, and that really speaks to me this morning. You know, I hadn't really been keeping track until yesterday when I was thinking about Ron and Joyce and and their family and realizing um, I've, I've been standing here for seven months on Sunday mornings. And as Tom used to say, Tom's gotten tired of saying this. I haven't heard you say this for a long time. You know, Tom, Tom's great words that he spoke to me second or third Sunday that I, I came and spoke, those, those famous words that you heard me repeat. You again? <laughs> yeah. So as we come to Mark's gospel this morning, he has bad news and he has good news, maybe great news. And so if you take your Bible this morning and come with me again to Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're going to just read a couple of verses again, verses 14 and 15. And uh, there's going to come a point where we're going to jump in and we're going to read like maybe six or eight verses instead of just one or two at a time. But uh, I love Mark's gospel. It's, it's one of my, my favorite, favorite, favorite books of the Bible. And in fact, when I have had the opportunity in the past to teach Bible study methods uh, to a group, I've always taken them into Mark's gospel and, and, and taught them how to study the scriptures out of Mark's gospel. And so Mark says simply, beginning in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, Now, bad news, after John was taken into custody, Jesus, there's the good news, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it's always important, I think, to kind of set the stage for what's happening. Because it's, it's good to remember what's gone before this moment. And so if you remember in these opening verses of Mark's gospel, John the Baptist has come on the scene And John's task and role was to do what? Prepare the way for Jesus. And we talked about Mark being a way maker, preparing the way for Jesus. And he did that by preaching a simple message of repent and be baptized and turn back to God, return to God. And so John's prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. People have turned. People have responded. People have been baptized in obedience. 
And Jesus came on the scene and He also was baptized, identifying Himself with that movement back toward the Lord. In addition to being baptized, if you remember, the Spirit descended in something that appeared to John kind of like a dove and the Holy Spirit descended and the great affirmation of the voice of God from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so it's with this backdrop of, of John's preparation, the Holy Spirit's coming, the voice of the Father in affirmation and approval, and of course then into the wilderness being tested, tempted, and now... His ministry begins. And this morning I want you to listen carefully. Listen carefully to the message of Jesus. Mark captures it in, in simple, simple terms. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first thing that impresses me here is that Jesus' message is good news. The gospel is always good news, right? Gospel, good news. The message that Jesus brings is good news. And one of the things that struck me here was he said, he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The source of Jesus' message, the source of His ministry, was God. God was the origin of the message. God was the source of the message. God's, it is the purpose and plan and design of God. And when you think about that, that this message is a God-inspired, God-sourced message, and then you realize that this same God is given to you and to me, the same God-sourced, God-empowered, God-enabled, God-designed message. We should be staggered by that, shouldn't we? We should be overwhelmed by that. Have you ever had good news to give to somebody? Probably most of us have. I remember when uh, Andrea and I got engaged. That was good news. You know, we, we shared that. Great news. I remember well when we were anticipating the arrival of our first child. And... We waited many months. We did not tell anybody that we were expecting until Andrea was five months pregnant. And I remember when we finally went public and announced, this was great news. It's a wonderful thing to be able to share good news with people. But to have good news that is God-sourced and it's His message... And so Jesus came, Mark says, simply preaching the gospel of God. God is the, the source. And the content of the message is captured in that simple little phrase, kingdom of God. 
You and I lack understanding, I think, of the significance of God's kingdom. Because the kingdom of God was the expectation of God's people. That there was a coming day when their king, their God, would rule and reign. Their expectation of a coming Messiah, a deliverer, the coming king, the kingdom. The kingdom and the king go together, right? This was their expectation, their anticipation. And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as you're reading through the Gospels, you're going to find 66 times in four Gospels the phrase kingdom of God. You're going to find 32 times the phrase kingdom of heaven. And so if you're really good at math, which I'm not, and you add 66 and 32, the kingdom is referenced in the gospel how many times? That's a bunch of times in four gospels. 89 chapters. And so this this kingdom of God is huge. The anticipation of, of a coming king. The anticipation of, of this coming Messiah, this Deliverer. And, and Jesus says simply, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says to his disciples, I must preach the kingdom. I must. It's an imperative. I must preach the kingdom. And as Jesus healed people, as he cast out demons, gave sight to the blind, all the great miracles that you're reading about in the Gospels, what was the, 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 the whole focus and intention of all that Jesus was up to in those three years? What was it all about? The kingdom. God's kingdom. Coming king. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. And so this message that Jesus has is not only good news, it's great news. The fulfillment of the anticipation of God's chosen people. The kingdom's at hand. The second thing that impresses me about Jesus' ministry as he begins his ministry and launches into ministry is that this message of Jesus, this good news that he's proclaiming, is a message that's urgent. It's urgent. What, what does the word urgent suggest to you? It's much needed, and it needs to be listened to, right? It's important. And so, Jesus uses two phrases. He says, the time is fulfilled, and he says, the kingdom is at hand. Time is fulfilled, at hand. Speak to me of urgency. Now, 
You and I, in our English language, have one word to describe the, the, the passing of events. We have a simple four-letter word, time. And we think we understand, we use time in this big, big, broad sense. The time is fulfilled. Well, in the language of the New Testament, the Greek language, there's two words for time. And the one word is the word chronos, which sounds like our English word chronology. Very good. So our English word chronology comes from the Greek word chronos for time. So what is chronology? It's like a timeline, the passage of time. And so chronology is you have a sequence of events, a sequence of time that goes by. The second word, which is the word that Mark uses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a totally different and unique word. It's the word kairos. And the word kairos speaks of time as a moment in time. An opportunity. And the word, the word kairos is fascinating to me because in the Greek pantheon of gods, they had a god named kairos. And the idea in Greek mythology with this Greek god Kairos was that you needed to seize the moment. You needed to seize the opportunity. And so if you could grab on to Kairos, there was this, this specialness, this, this opportunity to grab a hold of Kairos, to grab a hold of the opportunity. Um, what's that phrase? Um, Seize the day, carpe diem, kind of that idea. You know, seize the moment. So Kairos was an interesting creature in the Greek pantheon. He had a webbed feet, huge webbed feet, kind of like a duck. And so he had this wide, firm foundation. And then he, he had these huge thighs. Just, he was just solid. And... Because of his firm foundation in those big thighs, you couldn't grab a hold of Kairos. You couldn't tackle him like you would a, a halfback coming through the line in a football team. You couldn't, you couldn't take Kairos down. You couldn't seize the moment by tackling him. He had a, a tuft of hair that hung out on the front of his forehead like this. And the way that you grabbed a hold of Kairos and took him down and seized the moment was you had to grab this tuft of hair as Kairos is going by, this important moment, this opportunity to seize the moment. And so as Kairos went by, I'm going to kick over Joyce's flowers, I'm sorry. As Kairos went by, the goal was to seize the moment, to grab a hold of the opportunity and grab onto that tuft of hair. And if he went by and you didn't grab, there's nothing on the back because he's bald on the back of his head. Kairos. And so Jesus uses this word kairos when he says the time is fulfilled. Here is the opportunity. It's urgent. Not only is the good news, good news, great news, it's urgent. And I think about that in the context in which you and I live in the 21st century 
I think of that in the context that we live in with this pandemic and all that it involves in the lives of people. Is this a moment in time? Is this a kairos in chronos? Is this an opportunity in our chronology of life? Maybe like we've never had before. Is this a kairos moment that we need to seize and take advantage of? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Today is the day of salvation. Today. And if I remember that text in 2 Corinthians 6.2, before that phrase, today is the day of salvation, he says, now is the acceptable time. Guess which Greek word is used there for time? Or kairos, opportunity. Now is the acceptable opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus expressed it, the time, the kairos, is fulfilled, perfected, and now is the time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Act now. Seize the opportunity now. And so God has placed you and me in this century, in this kairos, this moment, as possessors of great news. And there's an urgency for it to be shared. Jesus had that sense of urgency in his ministry. He had how long before the cross? Three years, maybe a few months more. That's all. I wonder what we might do differently if we knew today that our life would end in three years. Or what would we do differently in our lives if we knew that our lives were going to end in one year? Or what might I do differently in my life if I knew my life were to end in six months? You can see where I'm going. (laughs) Three months. One month. Today. We need a greater sense of urgency. We need a greater sense of urgency with the good news that's been entrusted to us. We need a greater sense of urgency. So Jesus' message is good news. Jesus' message is great news, if you will. Jesus' message is urgent. There's an urgency to it. And then my third thought is that Jesus' message demanded a response. He didn't just simply say, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Celebrate. Get excited. Rejoice. The king is coming. Jesus said what? What's your text say? What's the Bible say? Repent and believe the gospel. Demands a response. The gospel always demands a response. And Jesus summarizes the response to the good news in two words. Repent 
believe. Repent. Believe. That's always been true, by the way. That's not simply a New Testament idea. God's call to His people throughout history was a, was a call to, to repent. And let me remind you, to repent means to change. To change your mind, change your attitude, change your heart. Ultimately, change your behavior. Repent and believe the gospel. I remember years ago reading the account of a very popular recording artist who the rumor was that she'd become a Christian. And uh, I read an article about Donna Summers and, and her coming to Christ. And one of the things that she said in that interview was, yes, it's true that I've become a Christian, but it's not going to change the way I live my life. And I remember reading that and going, what? I sure hope she was misquoted. Because the whole point of the gospel message is to do what? Change our lives. Transform our lives. You know, one of the things that was so impressive yesterday in the services for Joyce was that when she and Ron came to faith, her life was transformed. She was changed. Her interest in Jesus went from down here to up here. Her interest in people knowing Jesus had been non-existent and now it became a priority in her life. Life was transformed. That's what God wants to do. And so the expectation is that when someone repents, when they turn, when they return to God or they turn from their sin and turn away from sin and, and, and turn to God, their, their life is different. Their life has changed. and That's always been true. As I said, Jeremiah 15.7, the prophet Jeremiah records God's words, I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They did not repent of their ways. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18 says this, and again, God speaking, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. It has always been true in the heart of God that people would repent. That they would turn from sin and turn to Him. You heard me share the illustration a few weeks ago of a live hand grenade. If someone tosses you a live hand grenade, what are you going to do with that puppy? You're going to ditch that thing as fast as you can. And I had a box of masks up here that morning, and I tossed it to Eddie. He was sitting right here. And he hung on to that thing for way too long. He wasn't getting the point. Pass that thing back. You want to get rid of to repent. Is I'm, I'm, I'm tossing. I'm turning my back. That's always been in the heart of God. Always. Turn from sin. And turn to the Lord.
Jesus said this in Luke 15, that great chapter, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. As Jesus told that parable, He said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. (laughs) So what Jesus is saying is when one person turns their back on sin and turns to the Lord. There's great rejoicing in heaven. There ought to be great rejoicing here too, right? Absolutely. Repentance. Important. Repent. You remember the story in the early chapters of the book of Acts where Peter and John John healed the beggar at the gate of the temple. And that event prompted Peter to launch into a a sermon, his second great sermon. He says, Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, referring to Jesus' death on the cross. You acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that those the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Paul, his great sermon in Athens as he walked around the city and saw all their idolatry and he saw this one idol, the idol to the unknown God, one of the most fabulous, fabulous portions of the book of Acts. And Paul says to this gathered group of non-believing Gentiles. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has a fixed day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. This urgent message, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, demands a response. Responsive repentance. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord. One of the greatest examples of this in the entire scriptures is the account of the believers in Thessalonica. In chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The great testimony of the church of Thessalonica was summarized. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance. And as I was reflecting on this, I I thought of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And I think maybe part of that was yesterday in the service for Joyce as I read Proverbs 31 about the the wife whose value is greater than riches and is hard to find. And it talks about her having the fear of the Lord. Do you have a working definition of what it means to fear the Lord? The Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And that phrase, the fear of the Lord, uh, appears over and over again in Scripture. 
And the idea of the word fear isn't the idea of something that you're terrorized by or afraid of. The idea of fearing the Lord, the core idea is the idea of reverence or awe. And we think we understand what that means. But where I've come in, in my understanding of this, and I don't claim this is original with Roy, I, sus- I suspect this came from somewhere, but I couldn't tell you where. But my working definition of what it means to fear the Lord is two pieces. Dread to offend, anxiety to please. That when you and I fear the Lord, our great ambition is that the way that I live my life, the words that come out of my mouth, the actions of my life, that I dread to offend Him. And there's an eagerness in my life that everything I do, everything that I say, would be pleasing to Him. Dread to offend, anxiety to please. You and I live in a culture right now where everybody's offended by everything. doesn't matter what you do, what you say, you're going to offend people. And I don't know that I, I ever consciously start out to purposely offend people. But it happens, right? But there's one person that I ought to be most concerned about offending. And that's my Lord. I should have a dread in my life that anything I do or say would offend Him. And the balance to that is everything I do and say, the way I live my life, the choices I make, would be pleasing to Him. And I think about this when I think about what it means to repent. Because when someone has repented and turned from their sin, their heart ambition ought to be what? Not offend God, please Him with their life. The good news of the Gospel, the great news of the Gospel, the urgent message is that people need to repent. Turn from sin and turn to God. The second part of the response to the Gospel that follows that is what? Believe. There you go. looking for someone who's reading their Bible. Jesus said... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's another word that we sometimes struggle to understand. What does it mean to really believe something? The idea of the New Testament word believe is the idea of being persuaded of something. We've come to a conviction about something. I love to tell the story of a guy by the name of Blondin. Maybe a story you've heard, but it helps me understand what it means to believe. Blondin lived in the 1800s, years after the Civil War. And he was famous as a tightrope walker. And uh, he earned his living by traveling around and putting up a tight wire and walking the tight wire. And crowds would gather to watch and he would charge admission and so on. One of his most amazing feats was stretching a tight wire over Niagara Falls. 
and walking across the tight wire over Niagara Falls, which is pretty impressive by itself, right? But he, ha- he would add other things into the mix to kind of thrill people a little more. And I've read several stories. I, I, I'm not sure they're all true. But one of the, one of the things they said of Blondin was that uh, he would take a construction wheelbarrow out on that tight wire. And he would push that wheelbarrow crossed over Niagara Falls and back, which, again, pretty impressive. I can barely push a wheelbarrow on flat ground. And then Blondin, just to add a little more excitement into the mix, would take a 150-pound pig and put the pig in the wheelbarrow. And he'd push that wheelbarrow across the tight wire and back. And then Blondin was famous for having done that and to the cheers and adulation of the crowds, right? And then he would say this, How many of you good people here today believe that I, the great Blondin, could push this wheelbarrow across this tight wire with a 150-pound man inside? Oh, Blondin, you can do it, dude. We just saw you do it with a pig. You can do it. You can do it. And then Blondin said, And which of you good people will be my first volunteer? Silence. No hands in the air. To which Blondin responded and said, You people believe me, but you don't trust me. And you see, that's what it means to believe. When the Bible says to you and to me, believe, what it is saying is trust. What it's saying to you and me is, get in my wheelbarrow. What Jesus is calling on me to do and you to do in your life and my life is turn from sin, turn from rebellion against God, and get in Jesus' wheelbarrow and trust Him fully, completely, and totally. That's what it means to believe. Not just accept certain facts as being truth, or agreeing to a certain set of facts or ideas, but to trust. And I fear I fear that too often too many of people too many of people that doesn't, too many people too many of us fail in our lives to repent and believe the way this book says we're to repent and believe. And so I have a a list of things that trouble me that I've wrestled with in my own life and I think others. We fail at repentance when... And then I have a list of six things. We fail at repentance when we equate knowing right with doing right. We think that knowing the truth is the same as doing the truth. There's a big difference in there. That's a trap we fall into. Knowing right, knowing truth, different than obeying it. We fail at repentance when we substitute rationalization for repentance. It's so easy to rationalize away our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion. There's a story in the Old Testament of King 
Saul being sent out into battle with clear instructions that the enemy was to be totally annihilated, even cattle. Entire population was to be annihilated in this battle. And Saul returns victorious at the head of the column of returning warriors and announces to Samuel, God's prophet, we've conquered, we've accomplished everything that God called us to do. And Samuel says, uh, what's that bleeding of sheep that I hear and the, the lowing of cattle? Well, the, and Saul says, well, the people wanted to bring back animals for sacrifice. Well, was that what God told them to do? No. Rationalize. Don't do what God says. We fail a repentance when we equate an emotional experience with a decision to change or a decision to repent. Lots of people have had emotional experiences sitting in a church service, sitting in a crusade in some stadium. A lot of people have had emotional experiences but have never repented, never turned from sin. We fail at repentance when we substitute talk for transformation. Donna Summers. <laughs> yes, I'm a Christian. It won't change the way I live my life. We fail at repentance when we compare ourselves with others and think we're okay because we're doing better than them. That's one of the biggest pitfalls. That's one of the biggest pitfalls in our lives to compare ourselves with others. Whenever you find yourself comparing yourself with others, you wind up either feeling a great deal of pride because you think you're better, or you're totally bummed and depressed because you don't measure up in your mind. It's different than repentance. We fail at repentance when we substitute making a decision or praying a prayer or raising a hand or walking down an aisle or anything else like that. We substitute that for turning from sin. <laughs> See, this thing of repent and believe is huge. Repent and believe is the bottom line of the message that God calls us to respond to in our own lives, and then it's the message we're to share with others. A message that's urgent, important, needs to be communicated. Repent and believe. That needs to be a part of our message. And sadly, I hear the gospel presented oftentimes without the R word. There's never a call to repent. There's simply an emphasis on God's love and Christ's sacrifice on the cross and heaven and all the... It's all the good news without the bad news. And my experience is people don't really grasp the value and importance of the good news until they understand the bad news. That they understand that they stand under judgment of God because of their sin. They stand in His courtroom guilty of sin, worthy of God's judgment and death. And unless we understand that fully and completely and the implications of that and the implications of an eternal place called hell, unless we understand the bad news, the good news doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so if you simply ask a person, hey, do you want to go to heaven? You know, I'm in. I want to go to heaven. What's the old country western song say? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. 
Everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to repent and believe in the gospel. And if I understand what Jesus is saying in this, this, simple, this simple description that Mark captures for us, there's a, a need for us to repent. James uses the image of a mirror. You look in a mirror and you see what you look like. And, and what do you do when you look in a mirror and see your hair's all messed up or your tie's crooked or whatever else is going on? When you look in a mirror and you see that, what do you do? You change. Yesterday afternoon, I was dressed in a suit, which isn't my favorite place to live. But the last thing I did before I walked out here was looked in the mirror, made sure my tie was straight. And, and James uses that image for you and me. Look in the mirror and change. Make course correction. Proverbs says it this way. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. And you see, even as, even as God's people who have repented and come to faith, there's still a need for us week by week and day by day to repent of stuff in our lives. But the temptation is, the tendency is to, to kind of cover it up, ignore it, rationalize it, justify it. And the wisdom of Proverbs says if, if we conceal our sin and cover it over, God's not going to prosper our lives. The answer to that, the proverb says, he who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes sin, that word forsakes is like repentance, isn't it? Whoever confesses, agrees with God about their sin, that's what confession is, agreeing with God. I have sinned and here's what it is, name it what it, name it, what it is, that's confession. If I confess my sin and forsake it, turn my back on it, repent, it says I'll find mercy. We began our service this morning with that passage in the Psalms. Mercy of the Lord endures forever. The word translated mercy in, in Proverbs 28 is an amazing word. The beauty of the Hebrew language is that words portray pictures. Hebrew words can paint entire pictures. And the word mercy that is used in Proverbs 28 is a word that describes the most intimate of human relationships. The most intimate of relationships between a husband and a wife. The most intimate of relationships. And Proverbs uses that picture of a warm embrace to picture our relationship with God when we confess and forsake our sin. You want to have greater intimacy with your Lord? You want to walk more closely with your Savior? You want to have more intimate time with him. Confess and forsake sin instead of covering it up. Repent and believe. 
There's so much. I've been bragging about how the fact that I haven't preached very long the last three Sundays. I guess I'm making up for it this morning. So what do I want you to take home with you this morning? It's my conviction that the American church is filled with people who think they are saved, but have never truly repented and believed. One of my, I don't like the word fear, one of my anxieties, is that a safer word? I don't know. One of the things that always has challenged me is, as I stand before God, having been a pastor for 50 years, have I stood in front of a congregation where I have proclaimed the gospel, preached the word, and still at the end of those years there are people sitting there listening who have never truly come to faith? Can that happen? Sure can. I, I believe that the American church is filled with people. In fact, I don't know that Roy's right. I would love to know Roy's wrong. But I wonder if one of the things that God is up to with this coronavirus, I wonder if one of the things God wants to do in the American church through this coronavirus is a little bit of purging, a little bit of cleansing. Are people still going to hold on to the Lord? Are people still going to are people going to return to church who haven't been here for a year? I don't know. But I wonder if part of God's... I believe God has a purpose and a plan in this pandemic. Do you? This is no happenstance. This is no accident. Didn't blindside God and catch Him off guard. God has a purpose. God has a plan. I don't know what it is. I, I just wonder. Uh, my second thought is that I want you to take home besides the fact that... Many of our American churches, I think, are filled with people who have yet truly come to know Jesus. They've failed to repent and trust, get in the wheelbarrow. My second thought is too many of us who follow Christ take sin too lightly. We see it quickly in the lives of others. We don't see it on our own lives. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? Take the log out of your eye so you can see the speck in your brother's eye. But I think sometimes we fail because we take sin too lightly. Every survey that I've ever read that's ever compared the lifestyle and habits of non-believers and people who claim Christ is that their habits, their lifestyles are exactly the same. Both groups watch the same movies, watch the same TV shows, read the same books, read the same magazines. And the Christians are comfortable watching the same movies and TV programs that dishonor God and glorify sin that the pagans do. Why is that? That's not true for any of us, of course, but why is that? Well, that whole issue of repentance. Do we... Do, we take sin too lightly. My third thought is this. Our methods of evangelism have been long on believing but short on repenting. And I talked about that a little bit. 
Let me finish with this. You're all familiar with the classic biblical illustration of repentance. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the classic illustration in your Bible of someone clearly, boldly, strongly repenting of sin in his life? King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, David was kind of comfortable with what he'd done, kind of okay, until Nathan the prophet came and stood before King David. Remember the story he told King David? He said, there's this one guy, he's got thousands of sheep, thousands of sheep. And his neighbor is this poor family with one pet lamb. And this guy who has thousands of sheep is hosting a dinner party for a friend. And he takes the sheep from this poor family, their pet, family pet. And he takes this sheep and takes it and slaughters it and serves dinner to his guest. And David's response to this story that Nathan told him was what? That guy ought to be taken out and shot. Well, in Old Testament times, they didn't shoot people. But that was David's attitude, right? And Nathan said to David those classic words. In my eye, I see him with his finger like this at David. Those same words. You are that man. You are the man. And David responded to that. You know, he could have responded and said, take Nathan out and shoot him. But David responded to that, uh, that rebuke, that correction, that call in his life. And that's what God wants in, in my life, what God wants in your life. That we would recognize the reality of a need to repent of sin and turn to God. That's a need not only for those who have yet to come to know Jesus. That's not only a need in their lives to repent and believe. But that's really a need in your life and my life every day. Repent of our sin and trust the Lord. And so, I guess my my challenge this morning to myself and to you is, first of all, have have you truly repented and put your trust and faith in Jesus, His death on the cross? That's primary. That's priority. That's forgiveness of sin. That's the gift of eternal life. Everything that God wants to give us, all the blessings, it starts there. But what about in your day-to-day walk with Jesus as you follow Him, as you draw close to Him? He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. Warm embrace of love from your Heavenly Father. That's my prayer for you. Lord, that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for each of us this morning. And you know in my heart, my heart of hearts, Lord, I would choose not to offend other people, but more importantly, I'm more concerned that you would be offended. And so I guess I want to say if, if anyone takes offense at what I've shared this morning, I've, I've tried to share truth the best I see it in your word that would please you, 
that would honor You, that would glorify Your Son. And Lord, if there's anything that I've shared this morning that's not consistent with Your Word, Your truth, that You just kind of steal it away from people's hearts and minds. But take what's true here and apply it to our hearts and minds. That we might be people who trust You fully. We're in the wheelbarrow. We're all in. We're in the wheelbarrow. Trusting Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So grateful, so thankful for what You've done for us. And then make us, make us responsive to the sin in our lives. Make us discover there the stuff that we don't recognize and understand. And give us boldness, courage to turn our back, to forsake. To forsake sin and to follow you. Lord, thank you for doing that in in my life. Thank you for doing that in each of our lives. And Lord, remind us as we sang earlier how much we need you. We can't do this stuff on our own. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability. Oftentimes, if we're honest, we don't even have the desire. Lord, we need you. We need you to be at work in our hearts and lives. Help us to sense the urgency of the message you've entrusted to us. Family members and friends, strangers we meet, need to know Jesus. They need to know that the time is fulfilled. The moment is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us boldness to represent you well to a lost world. And we'll give you thanks together in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
My prayer is that you will go into the week ahead of you strengthened by the eternal God who loves you, cares about you, walks with you. Go into the week empowered by His Holy Spirit who wants to fill and control to give you guidance, to give you direction in the week ahead. Go strengthened by your Heavenly Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit with the love of Jesus. His love for you and His love for a a lost world that needs to know Him. My prayer is that you'll go into your week empowered because of the time we've shared together this morning in His presence. May God bless you. Have a great week.